chapters of the Bible, bring it to a conclusion, start something. I'll be teaching a class uh, starting next Wednesday night uh, here in the auditorium. And so hope you'll keep coming and I'll be a part of that class uh, starting, starting a week from now, and that'll take us to the summer. So that'll be uh, March, April, May, and then we'll go into our summer series and different guest speakers in June, July, and August. So that's what's coming up. Uh, this class has been on the great chapters of the Bible. A number of good classes already been taught, good chapters. Um, I picked early on, I picked Genesis 1 uh, because I haven't taught on this in a while. And, and also, I think it's pivotal. When you look at some of the other chapters, all of them have been good, of course. There are a lot of pivotal chapters in the Bible. Uh, Genesis 1, there's you know, so much, so much here, so many implications, potential implications of the, of the chapter. And it, man, what do you believe about Genesis 1? If you believe it to be true or not, it determines so many things. We'll talk about those implications in a minute. But whether or not you believe the first, you know, four, five words of the English Bible, in the beginning God created, uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that sets the course for how you're going to live your life, you know. And so, so much here. A lot of debate about Genesis 1. I'll go ahead and tell you up front, I'm going to solve all those debates tonight in the next 30 minutes or so. So if you've got any questions about the age of the earth, you know, the conflict between science and scripture or whatever, we'll just go ahead and fix all those problems in the next little while. That's tongue-in-cheek. I hope you guys know that. If somebody's listening to this later on, that's tongue-in-cheek. Uh, some of those debates I won't even, I won't even pretend to touch on tonight. Uh, just because if we, if we started, then we would inevitably not be able to address them in any kind of substantive way, certainly. Uh, there are things we can know about Genesis 1. There are things that we cannot know. Uh, this does not satisfy all of our curiosities about the age of the earth, about the relationship between science and scripture. Uh, there, are th there are questions we have uh, that I have, and I'm guessing you have some questions here as well. When we come to a text like this, and we, we, we try to think about what does the text say? What did it mean to its original audience? What did its original author, inspired by God, intend to communicate with the words that he used and as he talks about God's creation? There are strong convictions that we have about the text that influence everything else in Scripture. And I want to try to focus on those tonight as we, as we walk through this text together tonight. Genesis chapter 1. Let's go ahead and read it. It's 31 verses, of course, not terribly long. Uh, we're not going to go verse by verse. We will go, I'll, I'll cover the first couple of verses in some detail and the last six verses in some detail. And we'll skim through fairly quickly the intervening verses. But let's go ahead and read it all together to get it before us. Genesis 1, verse 1, beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. 
And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. If we have time tonight, we'll go on. I think the chapter break is at an unfortunate place. It really ought to be, I think, after verse 3 of chapter 2, because I think that's where chapter, you know, the thought itself ends. And then verse 4, chapter 2, begins kind of a new vantage point. Um, and we'll, maybe we'll have time to get to verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 here in a minute. Let's go back to the beginning of this. I want to make some general observations about this text, and you may have some. Maybe we'll have time for comments. I don't, I don't know if we will or not. Uh, but I do want to address an overview of what's going on in this creation account. We need to read this chapter... We, we do this with all of Scripture. We, we need to read this chapter as it was intended to be read, as its audience would have heard it when they got it a long time ago. We need to read it as, as the author intended it for it to be communicated. You know, this is one of the basic rules of reading the Bible is you try to 
put yourself in the sandals of the people who heard it originally, you know. You, you, try, to, you try to think about what, what did the author intend to communicate to the people who first received the text. Very important part of this, you know. It's especially important when we're dealing with something like Genesis 1 and we're talking about creation. This is a very important text for a lot of things, a lot of reasons. One of them being, you know, we're in this time of our lives, especially since, you know, time of, time of history, rather. I guess especially, though it didn't start here, it had existence before here, but especially since 1859 or so when Charles Darwin wrote Origin of Species. And in it, Darwin gave, what was the saying and who was it who said it? Um, there's well-known atheist, I think. Darwin gave, uh, gave reasons for you to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Um, that's not the exact quotation, but it's something like that. In essence, up until that point, though there were people who did not believe in God, they did not have any kind of mechanism that they could understand that could have explained the diversity of life in the world. And so when Darwin came along in the late 19th century, especially when he published that work and, uh, and the other works that he wrote, it began a, a, a trend, I guess, that gave people something else to believe in besides God, and they had some sort of mechanism for explaining it. So it was a very, very big thing. I do think it's kind of interesting that we, you know, we live 160 years or so beyond that, and the vast majority of people in the world still believe in God. We hear a lot about increasing secularism, and that's true. We, we hear the loud voices, some, some of the prominent atheists, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett and Christopher Hitchens died a few years back. Um, some, of these, uh, some of these folks call the new atheists, you know, they... They've come along and they've sold a lot of books and they go on the lecture circuit and they, they have some influence, you know. And I don't want to de-emphasize that because I think we need to think about it. But at the same time, it is fascinating that even in this kind of world where we, we think about increasing secularism and atheism is on the rise and all that, the vast majority of people still are not satisfied by any kind of explanation that completely removes God or gods from the equation. There's something about the world that causes us to believe that something happened that was caused by a being beyond this experience that we have. And the Judeo-Christian text, we believe to be inspired of God, of course, starts out in Genesis 1 by saying, this, giving this explanation, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. What do you believe about, if you believe Genesis 1-1 is true or not, determines how you live your life. Because if you believe, if you and I believe that this world is not simply the chance product of billions of years of unguided natural selection of random mutations that created the evolution of the species leading to what we see now with the complexity of life. If you believe that this all happened without God then I wouldn't, well, maybe I would fault you. I was going to say, I wouldn't fault you for living your life according to that premise. But we do fault people for living according to that premise, I think. And that is that if there is no God, we are just the chance product of these million, billions of years of unguided natural selection. 
you, you can think about how that changes the way you live life. You know, what, how, do you, how do you view the sanctity of life, for example? How do you, how do you view um, violence? How, how do you view what it takes to get to the top of the pile, so to speak? If you operate, I, th- I think, I know, I know there would be atheists who would disagree with this statement, but I believe that if you live consistently with an atheistic worldview, then it would be hard for us to call things that we somehow instinctively know to be wrong, it would be hard for us to call them wrong because they would be simply consistent with our worldview, right? Survival of the fittest, strong, take advantage of the weak. It's better for the weak and those with inferior genes to be eliminated from the gene pool for the survival and for the advancement of the species and so on. There's a lot riding on Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and, uh, and the earth. Let's, uh, let's talk about some of the words here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think this is a summary statement. And uh, he's going to go on and explain how he did that or explain kind of the, the functional nature of this creation narrative in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth is an expression. I'm going to come back to that at the end of this, I hope, when we conclude this in a bit by thinking about the heavens and the earth. That simply means, I think what he means here is everything that is. So John Calvin put it here in Genesis 1.1, probably oversimplifying it a bit, but maybe not too much. What Genesis 1.1 says is that everything that is, God made it. That's a pretty simplistic way of reading Genesis 1-1, but I think it's probably right. Everything that is, God made it. God created the heavens and the earth. Everything that is, God made it. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's spend a little bit of time in Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and Void. Lots of debate about these words without form and void. Um, I think. Well, let me let me read a different translation. What other translations? You guys have different ones out there. Without form and void. Uh, NIV puts it, now the earth was formless and empty. The New Revised Standard says the earth was a formless void. There's a lot of debate here, that's why I'm reading these. Um, Christian Standard Bible, that's a relatively new translation, puts the earth was formless and empty. You guys got anything different, substantively different than those? Nope. So, um, I think we're probably doing the different translation. You probably get the idea. It, 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 one paraphrase, I don't think that was in one of the ones I read, but a paraphrase is like, oh, kind of like a wasteland is, is a, is a word that's sometimes used to translate these words. Sometimes you, it's, it's either talking about two concepts or you're supposed to put them together and describe and, and think of one kind of idea. But to get the idea that here in Genesis 1-2, the, the, the image is of, of, of the world, but it is, it's, 
like amorphous. It's um, shapeless. It, it's not functional. It's just there. It's just it's just there, you know. Um, so it's it's like a well, I don't, I don't know I don't know the right words here. Wasteland, I think, is good. The best I can tell from reading what these Hebrew words mean, it's just has no function. It doesn't work. It's just there. Uh, so it's formless and void and empty, uninhabited. It's not accomplishing God's purpose. And so that's how verse 2 starts. The earth was without form and void, and darkness, darkness was over the face of the deep. And so the deep probably referring to waters, you know, covering the earth as kind of the shapeless entity at the time. And um, there's, there's darkness there. So you kind of get the image, idea that, man, there's, it's just darkness and there's this wasteland kind of, kind of thing. That's how the stage is set in Genesis 1-2. But then this, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Spirit of God. Now, uh, the word spirit, this is true, I think this is true in New Testament as well. It's a different language, but in the Old Testament, the word is, um, the, the word is ruach, R-U-A-C-H. And it means uh, wind. Literally, literally, that's what it means. It's like in the New Testament, it's, it's related, it's a different, it's a Greek word in the New Testament, but it means breath, you know. So all scripture is given by, all scripture is breathed out by God, you know, uh, or it's inspired of God. This idea of spirit or, or breath in the New Testament. Here in the Old Testament, it's a word that literally means wind. And so there's there are quite a few people who think that you probably ought to be you ought to be better off translating this uh, wind rather than spirit. You see, our temptation as Christians is to read what we now know and what has been revealed more fully to us in the New Testament for us to take that knowledge and kind of put it on top of the Old Testament and make it say things maybe that the text doesn't actually say. So some people suggest that that may be what we're doing here, that the word spirit, trying to make that mean the Holy Spirit, may not have been in the author's mind when he wrote it. And it may not have been, you know, intended for that to be communicated then. We're taking our notion of God the Father, God the Spirit, or God the Son, God the Spirit. You know, we're taking our idea of the Godhead and we're putting it on top of the text here. You know what I mean? So we need to be careful about that. We don't need to, we don't need to make it say something that it doesn't mean. However, uh, the word ruach can mean spirit. And so it might very well mean spirit here. It's just... I wouldn't be dogmatic about it either way. The Spirit of God may be indicating that it is talking about this, the Spirit or the Holy Spirit as we know Him from the full revelation of the New Testament. A couple of things that are going to happen later on. The, the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the, what does it say, over the face of the waters? Hovering over the face of the waters. That word, that verb, hover, it's used in another place in the Old Testament of, a, of an eagle who's hovering over her offspring, like in this kind of protecting way. Uh, but it also can mean to circulate. It's like used of wind. You remember in 
Genesis, I think it's Genesis 9, in the flood story, uh, that at the end of the flood, do you remember that after the, after the rain stopped and, you know, floodwaters increased and all that, God sent a wind. Do you remember that? God sent, he sent a ruach. He sent a, a wind, and it, it dried up the water, you know, so that you've got, you've got Old Testament stories where the wind that God sends has an effect on the water. That's, that's the idea. Do you remember in Exodus, this would be, what, around uh, Exodus 13 or so, I think, with the Red Sea, that God raised up a wind, and the wind blew on the waters, and it brought about deliverance. It, the wind that God sent there in, in the book of Exodus, you know, made the waters pile up on both sides, and they crossed over in dry land. So it signified in both of those, both of those stories, the wind that blew on the water that dried the earth signified the end of God's judgment there at the flood. And in Exodus, it signified redemption as God parted the waters using the wind and so if we're supposed to connect those ideas, it might be there's a hint here that the wind of God is circulating over the face of the waters to carry out the functional purpose of God in shaping things and making them carry out the purpose for which he created them. You know. Anyway. There's another connection. I'd never be dogmatic about this. But I do think I do think we can read the Old Testament through the Christian lens. In fact, I know we can, you know. My, my ongoing struggle is, is always not stretching it too far, you know. Uh, one, one of those uh, connections that you might see here is when Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3. And the Spirit descended in the form of a dove. The fact that the verb here in Genesis 1 is a, a, a verb that's used sometimes like of, a, of an eagle, um, hovering, fluttering, as it were. Again, uh, this is, I wouldn't go to the guillotine over this, all right, but just to, I, I do think, you know, God's a sovereign author of all of Scripture, and that sometimes you can see these threads that might be a, a hint of, what God's Spirit does is He brings about perfection and He brings about function and He creates and He, he brings order out of chaos. And at the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit of God is, is descending in the form of a dove, hovering, as it were, over the face of the waters. You see what I'm, see what I'm talking about? And that baptism signifies what Christian baptism would, would come to mean, and that is God's redemption and God's Spirit you're baptized for the forgiveness of sins that you may receive the gift of the Spirit, you know. So there's some ties there that I, I think are pretty cool at least to think about. Maybe, maybe God was hinting at some of these things that we can now look back and see through for a Christian uh, lens, you know. Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. Okay, I want to I mention... I want to uh, I want to I want to talk about the next well three through twenty four twenty five. I want to the, the the story the creation story the the next six days that are that are told here, starting with God making light, and ending with God's creation of human beings you know male and female. 
is told, it, it definitely has poetic elements. I'm not saying it's a mere poem that ought to be interpreted you know, merely symbolically or poetically, but it definitely has poetic elements to it. All right? and, and it's seen in the structure. Those words that we uh, looked at uh, a minute ago, the uh, formlessness and the void of uh, Genesis 1-2 and the Spirit hovering over that, what you're going to see in the days of creation, days 1 through 6 and then 7 stands on its own as a day of rest of, uh, of God's enjoying his creation. But what you see in these um, six days, you'll notice that this unproductive creation becomes productive. And so you go from the, uh, the without form, the left side, it, it is without form, it's, it's unproductive, and so you've got day one, God makes light and darkness. That corresponds with day four, where he creates the luminaries, you know, the sun, moon, and stars on day four, right? And so you've got the light and darkness of day one corresponding poetically with, with day four, where he creates the, you know, the sun, moon, and stars. Day two, you've got his creating the, the, the sky and the waters. And on day five, you see how that corresponds to God making the fowl, the birds who inhabit the sky, and is creating the fish that inhabit the waters, right? So you see that, that parallel. And then on days three and six, which are pivotal for a reason I'm going to show you in just a second. Well, here's one of them here. But he makes the two, two things. So two things happen on days three and six. This is unique. One thing on day one, one thing on day two, one thing on day four, one thing on day five. But on days three and six, Days three and six, God does two things. All right? So day three, he makes the land and the seas corresponding to the beasts, you know, the, the, the animals of the land and the animals of the sea. Right? He's, he's uh, what are they called in the ESV here? Um, beasts of the earth, verse 25, livestock. Um, okay. The, um, so uh, th then, he, then he has a kind of like a different act of creation on day three, and that is the vegetation corresponding to the creation of human beings on day six. It's interesting, one, one thing I did want to point out here about this, about this day three thing. Is look at this. I don't know if you've ever noticed. I don't think I'd noticed this before. So let's just walk through it for a minute. Verse three, God said, All right, let there be light. There was light. He saw it was good, called it day and night, and so on. And that's, and that's the first day. So God said, verse 3. Okay? Verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse. God made, verse 7. God called, verse 8. And that's it. So God said, and that was it, day 1. God said, and that was it, day 2. But then look at, uh, look at day 3. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens, so on, and it was so. God called it earth, called them seas. He saw that it was good. In verse 11, and God said, 
Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and so on. At the end of verse 11, it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, verse 12. It was good, end of verse 12. and verse 13, that was the third day. Do you, do you see that? Day one, God said, and he did it, and it was so. Day two, God said, he did it, and it was so. Day three, God said, he did it, it was so. And God said again, he did it, and it was so. And then day four, you go back to the previous pattern. God said it once, and it was so. Day five, God said it once, and it was so. And then day six, verse 24. Day six begins, and God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then verse 26, Then God said, so it's, just, it's, it's kind of interesting here. you got this structure. God said, God said. And then on day three, God said, God said, twice. Day four, God said. Day five, God said. Day six, God said, God said. The, the purpose of this, I don't want to you know, make too much of it, but I think you see the way that it, it's parallel. And you've got this structure. I think we're supposed to read this and understand that there's something God's trying to tell us about everything pointing to day six when he culminates his creation. Um, one more thing about that is that God said it was good with the other days, but on day three, he said it twice, and on day six, he said it twice. In fact, he says it, the last time he says it, on day six, he said it was, it was very good. So you got this, he says it once each day except for days three and six, and he says it twice, culminating in his calling his creation very good. The uh, only point I'm trying to make is that this is written in a way that we're expected, I think, to, as we study it, to see the parallels so that we understand there's this poetic structure to this beautiful image that the, that the biblical author is painting. And there's a trajectory here toward the culmination of the creation, which is day six, when God says, let us make you know, humanity, let us make man. All right. That's all I'm going to use my PowerPoint for. Um, okay, let's, let's look down. I'm not going to go through all the days of creation, uh, days one through five. I wanted you to see that structure to it and how, how the narrator carries out this kind of functional description of what God had done. But go down with me to verse 26 because that, uh, you know, that structure I showed you a second ago, I wanted you to see that it's, it's leading here. It is pointing here. It doesn't mean the rest of creation is unimportant. It's all good. It's, it's of God, and God made it, and it is good. But there's a sense in which the structure of the whole story has been heading to verse 26. Then God said. You know, do you notice the difference here uh, in like verse 24? Let the earth bring forth... Um, Verse 20, God said, let the water swarm. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights, and so on. I mean, it goes through the whole chapter. 
But then in verse 26, then God said, he doesn't say, he doesn't say, let there be human beings. He doesn't say that, does he? That's what he said the whole time. So he said that multiple times in days one through six. Even, even at the first part of day six, when he's talking about the animals, he says, let there be. You know, it's kind of this kind of passive kind of construction. But here, when he gets to, when he gets to humanity, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image. It's the only time it says this in the, in the text. So all these, all these things pointing to this, to this image that's being set forth here that God is creating all of this in preparation for us, you know, for, for his creating us. It doesn't mean that God made all this for us. I don't, I don't want to go that far. Because I believe God made, I think the text teaches that God made everything for his glory. But as far as creation goes, God makes all of these things and then he becomes very personal when he starts talking about us. God said, let us make man in our image. There's a big question here um, among the scholars. Uh, then God said, let us make man in our image. Why does he use the plural pronoun? You know? And... Um, I don't know that we know for sure why God does it that way. It's just one of those times where we want to read this through the lens of the New Testament, which maybe it's okay for us to do. Um, and uh, that's kind of the traditional interpretation of this. You probably are familiar with it, and that is that there's a hint here of the Trinity, of, of the plurality of the Godhead, you know. And it might very well be that that's the case here, but it's not the only possibility. Uh, it's not the... the it's not the only way of reading this. Um, sometimes the Old Testament, sometimes God in the Old Testament uses the plurality here, or uses the plurality to, to talk about like the heavenly court, the heavenly court that includes angels. Uh, I struggle with that one a little bit because we're not created in the image of angels, you know. Uh, I don't know what the best reading here is. I'd like to say he's talking about the God Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Maybe he is. But regardless, it's a very personal thing. You know, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Uh, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. So a couple of ideas here. One is um, I wanted to kind of emphasize in a practical way that that is the, uh, the image of God thing here. I preached a sermon on this a while back. I don't want to just preach it again, but uh, let us make man in our image. I think that's a one of the most important phrases of Genesis 1, in our image, in our image. The, uh, the image of God is an important concept throughout Scripture. And what happens, well, I want to read you, I want to read you what I, I think, this is from John Walton, but he, he said, like, what is image, you know? Before I read this, a little background, the, the language here kind of reflects this concept of, of a king who would set up images in the land that he, that he reigned over. And so he would put these statues, images of himself in different places all over his kingdom. So that if you ever wondered who's in control in this kingdom, all you had to do is look at one of these statues and you were reminded, oh yeah, that's the king. You know, that's, there's his image there. Of course, the Old Testament is going to say for us, you don't ever make an image of God. Don't ever make a graven image. The reason we're not supposed to make any kind of graven image is that God has made his images already. We are his 
quote-unquote statues. We are his images that God has put throughout the land. That's how this language, I think, is, is meant to be read, that we are to be reflecting God. We are, uh, we are his vice regents. We are reigning on his behalf. The language down below, I'll talk about that in a second, indicates that. All right, here's how John Walton defies, defines image. The image is a physical manifestation of divine essence that bears the function of that which it represents. This gives the image bearer the capacity to reflect the attributes of the one represented and act on his behalf. You see, that's the end of the quote. In, in conjunction with that, what happens here is in verse 26, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then he, then he says, this is what that means. Or this is an outgrowth of that. They're going to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That we are to be, we're to be carrying on the purpose of God. We're to be, we're to be uh, doing God things. We are reigning with him. We are in his image and we have dominion. God has put us in control, as it were, over the two aspects here being the animal world and the earth itself. And so you've got uh, two images used here. Verse 26, let them have dominion over the animals. And then look down at verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So we are to have dominion over the animals and we are to subdue the earth. And um, what that means, I think is that God put us here to take care of this. Um, there are probably some environmental, ecological kind of implications here. When we consistently rape the earth, we're not living with our divine uh, purpose here. You know, when... Obviously, there are people who take the whole idea of environment, environmentalism way too far. And um, the earth is worshipped almost as a deity. Well, it is worshipped as a deity in some places. Uh, it can become a god, but at the same time, uh, sometimes we perhaps rebel against that kind of false worship, maybe a little bit too far, and we aren't as concerned about the earth as we ought to be, you know. The language here is pretty strong. God put us here to take care of it. It is made for our use, but we are to care for it. We're doing it on, on God's behalf. So, um, I want to go back to the image of God thing because I think there are a lot of implications of that. Imagine how many of our problems in the world that would fix if we, if we all believed that. I think a couple of, couple of obvious implications here. One would be unborn life. Uh, how it would change the way people treat babies in their mother's womb if they believe that those babies are created in the image of God. You know? And when we take the lives of babies, whether in the womb or outside of the womb, we are defacing, as it were, the image of God. You know, that's a very 
powerful image there. And that's why I think as Christians we ought to, and I'm preaching to the choir, I guess, here, but uh, we, ought to, we ought to do what we can to keep people from taking the lives of, of the unborn. You know? Another implication of this would be and how many problems in history this would have prevented if we took this seriously as far as human beings of various ethnicities. The image of God idea. It's mind-boggling to us now, I hope, to, to think back on the history of the world and particularly the history of our own country when people, sometimes Christian people, sometimes even somehow twisting the Bible to support their own agenda, treated people, they dehumanized them. Somebody recommended a book to me recently, uh, and I'm about halfway done with it. It's called The Killers of the Flower Moon. You guys, David Grant, I think is the author. It's... Um, it's about some stuff that happened in the 19, early 1900s up in uh, Oklahoma. And when there were, there were um, Osage, Osage tribe of, um, of Native Americans who had been forcefully moved off their land and put on land that nobody wanted because you couldn't grow any crops there. Little did they know that beneath the land that nobody wanted there was uh, one of the greatest deposits of oil in the earth that um, had been discovered. It wasn't discovered yet, but it was discovered, making that land that nobody wanted, that they had given to the Osage Indians, some of the most valuable land in the world. And so what many Americans then, many white Americans, wanted to do at that point was (laughs) somehow get that from them, you know, and this is a story about murders that took place to try to get those mineral rights away from the Native Americans. Um, and, and since I was studying for this, I couldn't help but think that the kind of language that, that they used back in, that was 19, I think that happened in 1924, 25, right along in there, the kind of language that they used to describe Indians, to describe Native Americans, uh, dehumanizing, uh, Treating, treating them as if they're other, you know, as if they're somehow subhuman. Uh, that, that's, that tactic has been used forever uh, between people, you know, of people. Dehumanize them because of their race or whatever. Image of God. And if we truly believe that, change the way we treat people. It do away with racism immediately. You know, at least underlying cause of racism. Uh, because if we, if you viewed everybody as created in the image of God, and I know you guys already believe that, but man, the implications of that are enormous. I think. Before we run out of time, I want to, I want to make a connection to the New Testament here, that is is obvious. Oh yeah, one more thing about image. We're, we're just studying chapter one tonight, but uh, Genesis three, of course, what's going to happen there when Adam and Eve do what they do is uh, is that image of God is not is not removed, but it's distorted. It's, uh, it's marred. It's uh, disfigured. Genesis 1, we're created in the image of God. We're still created in the image of God. In fact, in Genesis 9, 6, after the flood, God is going to say it is wrong to kill, to take the life of another human being because that person's created in the image of God. So we haven't lost that. It's only distorted. So the New Testament teaches us that God is, is, uh, is transforming us into his image once again through Jesus. So there's a lot of, there's a big implication there. One more thing before we're done, and that is uh, John 1, 
I was thinking about this. I think, I can't remember if Bill Rayburn's class on John 1 was the first week or second week. It's early on. And this is a fitting bookend then for us to end the class on Genesis 1. Now we're going backward chronologically. Uh, the, the two texts relate to each other so clearly. You know, John 1, uh, the text says there, in the beginning, you remember it, John 1? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. When John comes along, long time after Genesis was written, by the inspiration of God, he reflects on who Jesus truly is. And John gives us some depth of information about the identity of Jesus that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't. And he starts out his gospel, not with a genealogy like Matthew or Luke, but rather he goes all the way back to creation. And he says, you know, we Jewish people have been reading Genesis 1 forever. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But now we have been in the presence of one who actually did it. He's the creator. So Jesus is more than just a rabbi, more than just a teacher, more than just a miracle worker. He's creator. And so you study that in John 1, and the word became flesh. He created, you know. It's a beautiful, a beautiful thing um, that John, John helps us to reflect on the creation as it points ahead to Jesus Christ. One more verse. Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Remember talking about the image idea? He's the image of the invisible God, talking about Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If Jesus were not here, we would simply cease to exist. He created us and he sustains us. All right, you guys, let's pray or we'll be done. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your blessing us. Thank you for hearing our prayers. We thank you for being the creator. And we pray that we will live our lives in view of the fact that you made everything and that before you we will one day stand as our creator, as our Lord and Savior and judge. Uh, we pray that more and more people will become convicted that you are creator and that we all will live our lives in view of the fact that we uh, were, were made for a purpose, Lord, and you created us to live for you and to do your work on earth. We love you and thank you. Please bless us as we go home tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.